स्मार्ट कास्ट लिसनिंग टू अंदुस्तान टाइम्स प्रोडक्शन ब्रॉट टू यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट हाई सो टूडे वी हैव विद शामीन ओब्रैन हुज रिटन ईटिंग ईटिंग द प्रेजेंट टेस्टिंग द फ्यूचर हाई शामीन एक्सप्लोरिंग चेंजिंग फूड हाई So, Hi. Thanks for thanks for inviting me to be on the program. I'm really delighted to talk to someone that likes books and authors. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you know, I mean, I found your book so detailed and also uh, really interesting because you bring an outsider's perspective to mm-hmm. you know to the food that like as Indians we're familiar with, but we don't see the change that we're going through. I mean, we experience it, but we you know mm. we're not really. you know we're not f- focusing so much on it which you have which i found great definitely yeah so you know um, what 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 made you do uh, focus on the change the changing aspect yeah. of it so you're absolutely right that's my advantage as an outsider is because i'm not in it i'm not immersed in it and that and that's true of all aspects of life really you know we you get on with your day to day and you don't notice it and that's true of anybody it doesn't matter whether you're in india or australia or you know wherever you might be so that was that's my advantage you know that as an outsider you know it's got its disadvantages i don't get the nuances of things sometimes um particularly in india where there's so many different languages you know i i can't dig into things at the way you know people can when they they've got that language capacity for a start not to mention the connections but yeah definitely i bring that perspective look the other perspective i think that i bring that i really wanted to is i've also placed and i'll get to your other this is a roundabout way of answering your question i've really wanted to place india in a framework of general kind of food history trends like global food history so that it's not seen as this quite kind of separate entity even though it's got all its own things happening there's a whole lot of things that are happening here that you know you, you look at any the history of the development of food in any country and the same sort of things are happening but what really got me interested particularly about india well i'm obviously deeply interested in india just as so my other area of of work is australian food history and i'm particularly interested in the 19th century so colonial australia mm-hmm. and of course colonial india so we're colonial cousins in that respect mm-hmm. um but colonial australian food history is essentially british food history it's a uh, the settlers replicated so British food history then and Australian food it's a product of the industrial revolution there was an enormous amount of really significant social cultural change that happened because of the industrial revolution and because partly what that did was it lifted a whole lot of people's prosperity and it created a middle class and so having come to india in the first time in 1995 when you're only a few years into economic reform and what i saw was still very much a frugal kind of socialist um you know though those vestiges were still operating so i saw that but then there was like kind of accelerated over time to this kind of what to me looked like a you know a very rapid pace of change and I'm a bit loath to use that word because I think the rapid pace of change is overused and I I think throughout history people have experienced it change is rapid like if you read about the industrial revolution the way people describe what's happening is absolutely no different to how we describe 
contemporary change. But I just, for me, India just felt like it was really, it was much changing much, much. India's changed a lot more over the last 25 years than Australia has, for example. So there really was a, a very accelerated pace of change. And I just, it's, I felt like I was watching a kind of industrial revolution happen. Now, it wasn't about steam trains. It was about technology, but it was the same thing, this this kind of increased, you know, an increased level of prosperity. And I, I understand that's not true for all people, but and that emerged a much bigger middle class and basically more power to consume yes. is what that gives people. And yet people are consuming different things. But it, so it was like watching history happen in front of me, and I mean that. I mean, of course, history happens in front of us every day, but this re- just felt really different to me. So that's that was really, and I just thought I wanted to capture that. I thought it, you know, it was fascinating to me. And I and and the other thing that was coming in that this this whole kind of globalized food culture that's coming to India now um, that sits in India's diverse food cultures, but it that really is a whole new kind of food culture that's come in over the time I've been coming here. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're the things that that's what gave me the idea for the book. Um, and so I, I wrote, you know, I put a proposal together and, and here we are. Um, okay. So, so you, you, I mean, you're talking about things like pizzas and you mention it even, you know, in small town India, mm. there are these places where people hang out and yeah. burgers and pizzas and yeah. that's yep. I mean, people in their twenties—that's very mm. commonplace for them. Whereas oh yeah, and coffee and cafes yeah. and yes. Whereas somebody from my um, generation, we which just which mm. came of age with liberalisation, really, you know. Yes, we saw like how you're saying. I mean, I suppose both of us about the same age. So you were mm. observing it, and we, like people like me, were part of it, experiencing it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, the much younger people today take it for granted. So that's what I found fascinating about it. Mm. You know, mm. when you, point, you look at these things. Mm. So you're absolutely so. The first what I saw first come in in that globalized food culture was like was the I suppose that you know that the the mass produced the fast food. You know, you got Mc. I can remember going to that first McDonald's store in Vasant Vihar. You know, I can remember going to the kind of a really early pizza shop in that Ansel first sort of shopping mall, and then there was this pizza shop in there. And, and actually, the pizza in that shop was pretty good, but there was all the kind of you know the mass produced pizza. So you kind of see the that kind of you know mass produced you know fast food come in first you know the big kind of chains come in it was also very interesting to see how they didn't succeed in the way they thought they might like it wasn't an easy route for them and then fascinating to see how mcdonald's had to change its menu to to work here and i think it was the first time they'd done that they do it all the time now but i think that was i think that was a real shock to them and i think that speaks to how ingrained india's for lack of a better word, traditional food culture is, and it's not going to go away, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, but it is, I think, will be a little bit encroached on, and we can talk about that. But what I'm talking about now with the what that's grown into is this global food culture where you can go to cafes in, in Delhi, in Gurgaon, in Bank, you know, in in Bengaluru, in Kolkata, in Mumbai, and and in you know Hyderabad. 
Omniabad, and it's like you could be anywhere in the world. You know, that I could be sitting in Sydney. You know, the menu's the same, the, you know, that there's the focus on coffee, there's the, you know, the Nutella this and the Oreo that and the banana bread and the quinoa salads and, you know, and the and the ambience and the style and you can have a glass of wine with your food. Um so honestly, you could just be anywhere in those in those type of places. Often there's nothing on the menu that even indicates that you're in India. Um, but some of them do also, you know, have Indian elements in them. But the thing that's really happening now is all those wellness trends. You know, that's and it's coming, but you know, the the gluten-free, the dairy free the vegan the suddenly vegetarianism's plant based food um you know which i find pretty amusing given that india's got the most diverse vegetarian cuisine in the world and has had so for a very very long time mm-hmm. um so all that that well that cuz that's the kind of thing that's probably one of the most influential things on food trends now is this kind of wellness and healthism and you've got all that going on right and recently, this mobile grocery van pulled up in in where I stay, in the colony I stay in, in Delhi. It's actually from Gagaon, this company. I forget the name of it. And it's really fabulous. It's like this mobile van with these glass sides. It's like a shop in this mm-hmm. van. And they pulled up and it had every global wellness trend food in there. And it also had gourmet foods like cheese and charcuterie. Everything was made in India. All made in India, great quality. Um, and just going back to what I was saying about branding being the most important choice, um, sort of influence in food, all beautifully packaged, great graphics. Um, but so interesting to see like everyday Indian foods repackaged in that way, organic, you know, etc. And suddenly, of course, charging more for them. Um, so that's the kind of global thing that really interests me. And also that it's it, – and chocolate, like, you know, all the great chocolate that India is making. Um, but it's not – see, when I, when I first started coming to India, those kind of international-style foods were definitely the purview of the – quite elite. Yes. You know, there were something you had to go to, one of those, you know, very upmarket you know, grocery store in Khan Market and pay a, ver- a lot of money for something. Yes, yes. And you did get Indian versions of some things, but they look, you know, in- they weren't great. Like they weren't very good quality, mm-hmm. like chocolate, for example, right? And now it's fabulous. Like it's such good quality. Um, I think some of it's more interesting. And, you know, the, the packaging, you guys do great graphics. Um so that that that's what I mean by this global trend has grown out. It's grown from the fast food into and great pizza, like really sophisticated, you know, thin crust pizza with not too much stuff on the top, and um, you know, nice pasta dishes, uh, just really good versions of everything, sophisticated versions. And then of course there's the whole cake thing, you know, like this explosion in really great quality cakes that, you know, some of those cake stores, you could be, any, again, it could be anywhere in the world. The quality, fantastic. The variety is like the Big Chills cake store in Khan Market, if I can say a name. They have got, I, count, I went in and counted one day, they've got 120 different things in that store at least. I can't think of a store in Australia that's got that many different baked goods in it. Um, and they're great. They're all good quality. That's possibly also to do with numbers. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, Delhi's got the same population living in it as Australia has in the whole continent. So, you know, <laughs> you, you've true. got you've got significant numbers. Indians love sweet things. Um, not that you know people don't, but I think Indians have got a particular passion for sweet things. Um, and yeah, you, and also you know the other thing is you, you know there's a lot of celebration here. You, you know, you have a lot of festivals. Um, I think there's a lot of cake buying for you know as gifting and yes, celebration, um, whereas we probably don't say for example in Australia we probably don't gift things like cakes as much as as much as kind of happens here, and and we definitely don't have as we don't have as like if you were going to someone's home say you're going for dinner. You would possibly you'd take a bottle of wine as a gift more often than you would take a, a, a cake. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, whereas here people are more inclined to take sweet, you know, like interesting mm-hmm. sweets. Um, so, and also you just have far more festivals than we do. We're very austere on the festivals. We've <laughs> <So, laughs> like Christmas and Easter. That's all we get. <laughs> Okay, so, so you, you know you've you've spoken about all this, but I and especially you know you've mentioned uh, MasterChef Australia a couple of times, and mm. you, you know, and, and you said that people perhaps are mentioning it to you because you're Australian, but no, MasterChef Australia is really yeah. a huge thing in India. You know, I mean, oh, definitely, it. and I remember, yeah. Some chef telling me that, you know, she got uh, a couple of, they were walking down an old Delhi street, you know, in the old city. Mm. And these two chefs, they, uh, you know, they, they were from Australia, I think, or they, they were, they were on a uh, MasterChef Australia. They had appeared on mm. it. They were mobbed. Yeah. This is on yeah. the street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? And I people am, who, yeah. who, you know, you don't assume like the, the neighborhood wasn't upscale mm. or anything. It's like a yeah. traditional neighborhood. But they were, they were mm. mobbed. So yeah. yeah. I um I just through a, a a friend of mine, um, I know that when um when they had George Columbaris go to Chandigarh to promote some cheese and apparently they had to get in like extra security. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, and he, it was quite, you know, because every, and he said also, because everybody wants to, t- everybody wanted to touch him. And he said it was mainly men that wanted to, like it was men that wanted to touch him. Um, and I think, I don't think it was a problem, but it's just a very unusual, you know, like a kind of unusual thing. But yeah, look, I, I did mention that because I just wanted to be, you know, make sure that I, I, I did, I was acknowledging that maybe because I was Australian. But no, look, that was a phenomenal show. Also, you know, I've said this, I think that show, was just it was just an incredible kind of piece of magic TV. I think those three guys just really they just was something about them working together that just really made that show something really exceptional. Yeah. Um, because I I haven't taken you know I think since they left I don't think it's been as I mean look it was pro- possibly on the way on its sort of downward run by then I mean it was ten years or something I I just yeah and it just it really something about it really sparked for Indians I mean it was the most watched TV show when it was on I mean I've got my own kind of ideas about what that might have been. Um, in terms of the the TV, I think they were. I think what might have worked really well here too is they're really kind. The guys, like they were, you know, they were they critiqued, but they were really kind and caring in the way they did it. They weren't they weren't brutal, um, and they weren't doing all that screaming and yelling. 
<laughs> yeah, all that screaming and yelling that they did on on like Gordon, you know, what's his name, yes. Gordon Ramsay, and those other shows. Yeah. I think they were they were quite. I think that approach really worked. The other thing that I and I've written I've written about it in the book is one of the things I think was probably fascinating for people here was that because Australia's got this multicultural population, there was a real emphasis in that show on bringing in people from different cultural ethnic yes. backgrounds. Yes. And then what they did was they really encouraged those people to draw on that background mm-hmm. for their to, you know, create their own unique food style. And also I think to to be able to offer something different to audiences and all that sort of stuff. And my theory is that I think and I'll tell you why I have this theory because it, it fits into I think that a lot of Indians, particularly women, must have watched that show and gone, hang on, we do we've got all this great stuff. And I think it might gave them a different perspective on what they might have just been doing in the kitchen as a as an everyday thing. And suddenly realizing that they're creating this this really exceptional food or diverse, interesting food that actually other people might be interested in. It's not just their not just their kind of everyday food. Um, I think that may. I mean, I think that's had an influence. Um, of course, you know, there's all sorts of aspects aspects to that show. I'm sure somebody must be writing a PhD on it as we speak, <laughs> um, <laughs> dissecting it. So yeah, and um, I don't know. I think India. Here in Australia, has just got a bit of an affinity as well. I mean, you know, we both love cricket. Um, I know that a lot of Australia, provided India is not playing Australia, I know a lot of Australians <laughs> will, you know, will barrack for India, probably vice versa. Um, yeah, just think. And, you know, historically, you know, we're cousins. I mean, we're both colonised. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, a lot of food, you know, a lot of when Australia was first colonised by, by the British, they took food supplies with them. Yes. They actually stacked the ships with two years of like industrialized food supplies and thinking they were going to go to Australia and they're going to build or create these farms and suddenly they'd have all this food. Well, that didn't happen. And they actually nearly ran out of food. So they sent a ship off to Calcutta to come back and the ship, they filled the ship with food from Calcutta and, and brought it back to Australia. And that actually opened up the trade between India and um, Australia in the 19th century or actually late 18th century. Yeah, I like that bit where you said, you know, the Bengali Laskars uh, exchanging uh, food for uh, food with the Australians because they were so cold. And I, I yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was rum more than anything, but also rum, yeah, rum. because <laughs> the convicts were actually issued what they were called slops, which which was clothing. So they were, I think, they were more than happy to exchange it because I think they just thought, well, they'll get more. Um, they weren't meant to do it, um, but yeah, it's quite, it's quite. Um, and you know, I'm actually writing a new book, and it's about celebrity chefs in colonial Australia. The first cook chef, I'm, I'm using the word chef very broadly, is is an Indian fellow who was born in Surat in 1804, and then he he went to England. He would he would have gone as a Lusker to in to England, and what happened to a lot of those guys is when they got to England, they often got dumped. Because the ship wasn't going back for a while, and they had no money, or they or they they used it as a way of getting into England and not wanting to go back. So they often had no resources. So this guy got this um fellow got caught stealing 
Okay. In London, so he was convicted. He was convicted to death, and then they community sent. Yeah, well, they used to because the law, the law then was just really brutal. It was like if you stole anything worth, I think, over twelve shillings, it was an automatically a death sentence. So, but what they did with a lot of they commuted the sentence to transportation to Australia. So this fellow came to Australia as a convict. And he has a very interesting history, a story. But he eventually, the reason I'm interested in him is he eventually became the cook for one of Australia's most famous explorers. In He lived in Sydney. So the reason I'm saying that is there was a lot of shipping trade between India and Australia. And I think there were, Luskers would have got off the ships. There's a whole lot of stuff that would have gone on. But unfortunately, you know, there's no names. There's not a lot of records. Um so there was a, you know, he became a celebrity. Well, I'm I'm using the word celebrity very loosely, but what he became a sort of celebrity, but because of his proximity to a famous man, so he was acknowledged as Thomas, you know, Sheikh. His name was Sheikh Brom, which could have been a, you know, a bastardization of his name, Sheikh Brom. The Thomas Mitchell's cook. That was what how he was described in a newspaper. So there's not a lot about him, but that was enough for me. I mean, that he's in a newspaper. Yeah. His name's there, and but his celebrity comes from his proximity to this this explorer. So I've been able to go because he's a convict. One thing about early Australia is it's very very well documented because the convicts were supported and and fed and clothed by the government, so that everything's recorded. Mm. So there's really quite good record about this fellow and his kind of history as a convict. Once he goes out of the convict system, it's not easy to find it much information about him so that that's why so and then I realized he's a bit infamous because he escaped a lot from these penal settlements and went and lived with aboriginals and aboriginal people and so anyway that was a, a long segue about Australia and India's um, history it's really and particularly around food yeah and now we're you know we're very very keen on Australia and India have recently signed some trade agreements around um, wine. I think that India government has agreed to re- slightly reduce the enormous amount of taxes that are pl- applied to wine here, making a one glass of Australian wine like about twenty-five Australian dollars in a in a restaurant. <laughs> but that's that's predominantly to do with taxes. And also, we recently just um, signed a trade agreement so that we can send avocados to you guys, oh. and you are going to send us bindi, which. I am very bemused about because I wasn't un- aware that there's a huge demand for bindi in Australia. I must be wrong. Or we're going to do some magic with bindi in Australia and start marketing it as a superfood awesome. because you guys are marketing macadamia nuts, which are, which are indigenous to Australia, as a food here. And we don't we don't necessarily market them as a superfood in Australia. So I'd be interested to see what happens with all the, all this bindi that's going to be landing up in Australia. <laughs> yeah, um, that's interesting. So you know what I liked about the book was it I, you've picked up these things and, and it made me you know the, these nuggets of information like like this penal colony and you know mm-hmm. and um, and the connection between India and Australia and that way and also while you're traveling in India, uh, you know, all the things that come up. And I was thinking, uh, especially the early bits when you said that, you know, when you're traveling in the, uh, in the 90s and all these boys mm. running after you. And I, I even oh, yeah. you know, I was thinking with 
have i think the even the react is possibly because we've become more exposed through media and through travel that yes the attitude towards people who are not indian has changed you know uh, that also made your book also made me think about that because i don't mm. think that sort of thing happens now i wonder you know oh look i don't think it's look i under i mean that that being chased around at the actually wasn't so much i got chased around the red fort in in agra i got really hassled in the taj mahal though no i probably wouldn't i mean people were like just suddenly surrounding me with their whole family and saying, you know, madam, let me take a photograph like I was, you know, like I was Princess Diana or some kind of celebrity. I don't think that would happen now, although people still, they want to take selfies, of course, but nowhere near as much as that would have happened. Um, No, I think you're right. I think people are, you know, I mean, look, I was a novelty. I I get that, you know. So um, I think people are, are more, yeah, it's not as fascinating perhaps as it was. So, yeah, that, that happens look it still happens a bit I look I'm also you know I don't know I'm older you know I was was young you know I had kind of blonde hair at that stage and you know I've got freckles and blue eyes and I just I think you're right people are just they've just had more exposure and more of their own experiences and um and also look I'm so being in India you know feel just feels to me like it's normal like I'm just at home it's like I've just gone to another suburb or another state of, of you know I don't nothing I mean I do notice things but I so maybe any anyway, I think ultimately I think you're right I think that's calmed down a lot but if you go to a really tourist place people will still hassle you because yeah. you know they see you as a not so much as a novelty but they just see you as a tourist yes. and yes. that's what happens and they probably do it to Indians as well. I don't think it's necessarily just, you know, they see you as a tourist. I'm more I'm more obvious because of my, you know, I stand out more. Yeah. But yeah, it's just that kind of tourist hassle that happens in a lot of part other parts of the world as well. Um okay. You know, I also liked how you you know brought out cheese and you know uh, yeah. changing changing really and I see it in my own life. I mean like yeah when one mm. was younger Cheeses were just awful, you know. You didn't get good cheese, and then well, you so- got that can of Amul cheese, yeah. and we used to eat that as well. Very happy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's got it. It's got it's good. I, it, it's it's quite nice in you know, some cooking, but yeah, it's it's. Um, we had look when I was growing up, we we you know our cheese culture has also evolved in Australia. I mean, I ate the we ate the equivalent of Amul cheese when I was growing up. I loved it as a kid, you know, you, you, yeah. you know. But once you start eating more sophisticated cheeses, yeah, that kind of goes to the, you know, the back burner. Also, I, you know, while, while I was reading that section on cheeses and when you've mentioned, you know, indigenous cheeses and there has mm. been a revival of them. But yes, like, there like definitely said, has been. Yeah, maybe only in these upmarket, you know, farmers, uh, farmers markets, you know, where, like you said, more affluent Indians access those places mm. and but then that's a big market as well so you know mm. I'll tell you something interesting about that I think in in the book you I, I wrote about that cheese production factory or you know small cheese business up in up in um uh, uh huh, in um near Sitla Mukteshwar and 
that was really interesting because the the chatting to the fellow that owns that, one of the owners, he just was saying how when they employed the women to start with, they had no idea what this cheese was, right? They then in fact none of them really had it, you know, it was something they wanted to start. But I was talking to someone else about this the other day and they told me what's happened there now, because they'd just recently been there, is the women that work there and make the cheese, they've started to you know, because you get bits of cheese that you can't sell anymore and um, you know, and I mean cheese has got a long apparently they're taking it home now and they're starting to put it in like they put it in their cooking and they use it you know they top dial with it and they're making pizzas at home and I just thought well there you go so even you know these are rural women um, that would still be cooking every day making their local food but they've brought this cheese into it um, and I think that's really fascinating so yes in terms of buying cheese those sort of cheeses and and having them on a regular basis that is still very much a kind of you know in the upper sort of socioeconomic sector of of India but there you go you know the people that have got access to it in other ways are using it um so we that that place will probably develop a sort of cuisine that sent that includes this and yeah exactly so in a few years' time, someone might like me might go there and be wanting to see what people are eating, and suddenly you've got this. You know, everybody's putting cheese in their in their food around there. Um, that's so fascinating. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's because you know India has always absorbed you know new foods. Yes. I mean, a lot of the foods that you have as an everyday thing are, are only hundreds of years ago were added to your to the food culture here. That's true. Um, that's true. Some, I mean, you know, you've got thousands of years of food of food culture, but you know, like chilies and potatoes and tomatoes, and you know, a lot of the spices that you use are not are not from here. Yeah. Um, so it's you know, it's always styles. been a porous thing. Yes, yes, a yeah. lot of cooking styles as well. You know. Yes. Because you've all, you know, you've been trading for millennia and going to different places and there's been, and you know, it's probably been, you know, it's those things have evolved over probably a much longer period of time than they perhaps will now because there's so much connectivity, there's, you know, technology, social media, but it's definitely always happened. Um, you, you know, I mean, you're trading, trading with all sorts of, you know, ancient Egypt, Greece. Um, yeah, but it's all accelerated because of the internet now, isn't it? Oh, definitely, yeah. And people can see things in real time. And, um, and then, of course, you get that people seeing things and then you've got those kind of, you know, supply, really fast supply chains now. So yeah. if suddenly something's trending, you can get it over here pretty quickly, maybe in an imported version, and then then quickly people will start producing it, you know, here if there's a strong enough demand for it. So it just all happens yeah. happens really quickly. has this whole section on, um, on uh, wines and spirits and, you know, mm. all the innovative uh-huh. things that are happening with that. Mm. And mm. how uh, Indian the Indian wine industry is at uh, perhaps a nascent stage still, right? In terms of yeah, making in other places, perhaps. I I that yes, I think that, but I think it's it's moved along. But yeah, definitely still in. Um, I think one of the re- if we're saying it, one of the things I see happening is I think the Indian winemakers are not necessarily so much themselves at a nascent stage because I think they're quite, you know, they've gone off, they've trained overseas um, and also you've had a lot of international winemakers like invest quite a lot of money in here because, of course, it, you know, India is potentially a massive 
market. I think what's still nascent, though, is still perhaps Indians' um, understanding or um, palate for wine. Mm. So I think your winemakers have got to the point where they're certainly, you know, potentially making some sophisticated, you know, I, I don't think their skills and knowledge are I think they're quite good, but also you've also got, you know, you're in a country that doesn't necessarily lead it, lend itself. There's not a lot of land that lends itself to growing um, wine grapes. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, you, winemakers have been working out how they can do it and what they can grow that works here. But then you still, I think what's lagging is that kind of training the Indian palate to um, understand and appreciate wine and also and again, I've, I think of, I don't know if I've written about it, but I've talked about it. You know, I was really surprised when I first, you know, coming to India that you go to someone's home for dinner and all the drinking takes place before you eat. Yes. <laughs> so there's not really a, I mean, you'd have snacks, right? But there's not, wasn't really a connection really between any alcohol and food. Like you'd, you'd, you'd sit there and you'd have drinks and boy, if you're with a couple of big, you know, big burly seat guys that wanted to drink a bottle of whiskey before dinner, you know, you sat there and waited until they'd finished. Yeah. And of course I'm a bit of a gut. So I've, I've had a few, I've had a couple of whiskeys or a few whiskeys as well by that stage. Plus I've stuffed myself with the snacks because I get, you know, because you eat so late, I'm used to eating much earlier, and so by the time the food comes out, I'd be I'd, I'd be full because I've already. But the other thing I loved about that was actually when the food comes out, that is the, actually the signal that the night's kind of finished. So the food comes out, everybody eats, and then nobody really hangs around, right? Like everybody knows it's time to go home. And I thought that was fabulous because what happens in Australia is someone comes for dinner, you might have a drink or you know maybe a glass of wine before dinner and then you sit down to dinner but you drink through the meal and then people might want to hang around and keep drinking after it and it can be very hard to get rid of people and so you don't want to because you don't want to you know you like you do the oh you know oh I've got to get up people will just because they've had a few drinks and they're chatting and you know they don't go home whereas here it's just this fabulous accepted thing that once the food served yeah it's kind of, you know, a little polite chit-chat at the end and then you're out of there. So going back to that, there isn't this kind of connection between food and alcohol. And then, you know, people, I think, and this is a common misconception, I think, everywhere that, for example, wine doesn't go with Indian food. Mm. And that's just not true. It's just that people aren't used to it. And you see in, in the... In your book, you've given some very nice pairings in your book. Well, they they come from Sula. I didn't make them up. But I've always paired at home when I cook what I would call my Indian-inspired food. I always serve wine. But what I do – see, so most Westerners, and this is changing – experience of Indian food is in an Indian restaurant. And what do they do in an Indian restaurant? They put enormous amounts of chili in it because people think that's what it is, right? Well, if you're going to do that, yeah, don't waste your wine on, you know, have a beer. But if you come, if you're more familiar with the fact that most Indian food in India is not like that, like it's rest, you know, that, yeah, there are some dishes or some particular communities that like food that's really chilly hot, but that's not what most food's like. And so actually you can easily pair um, wines with Indian food and, but it's getting that, it's that, it's just that it's actually changing not only the 
the understanding of wine, it's that culture of drinking without food, not eating it, I mean, yeah, with snacks. But then the other issue with wine in here is, is it coming back to what I mentioned before, is the taxes. You know, it's so expensive to buy even a bottle of Indian wine yeah. compared to buying a bottle, because wine's considered a luxury product, like it's a rich man's thing. So the taxes are high. And so compared to the cost of buying a bottle of whiskey, mm-hmm. which you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck out of in terms of, you know, number of drinks. And if you're somebody that wants to get a bit high, we're well, going to get a lot more bang for your buck out of, out of a whiskey or a, a vodka or something. So I think all that cultural stuff around it is what's probably lagging. And then there's another aspect that India doesn't make that much wine so it's kind of I mean it's making a lot but it's not making a lot compared to the size of your population so it's kind of a bit of a limited supply in a way so I think all that's happening I think and you know people I'm sure people I think there's still a bit of snobbery around wine in India too like my experience is still that a lot of people think imported wines are better Mm -hmm. um yeah and I would argue that that's not necessarily the case because a lot of the imported wines you get here, they're not great quality wines because the taxes are so high that you ha- that if you're landing really good quality wine here, the cost of it in a, to buy retail would be so enormous. Yeah. So you have to land the kind of cheaper wines here to make them somewhat affordable, whereas the Indian wines you're getting that are coming in at the same price point are probably better wines in, in many in many respects. And I think, I think you're doing some, I think, you know, again, people will argue with me, but I think that you're making some, some good wine. And yeah, there's still some experimenting going on and um, there's some really interesting kind of mass market wine products that are going on here too, like they've got a lot of sugar in them and I don't know, I don't even know if you'd call them wine, but, um, you know, that's a that's a different thing as well. So, yeah, it's very been, – been... Yeah, why do you think we have this sweet tooth? I mean, we have like, okay, chocolates, yeah, pastries and traditional mm-hmm. Indian sweets. But even the, the preference of wine is sweet, you know, is a sweeter red yeah. wine, right? So At, at uh, this point, and I think I, to, I, I wrote, to, you know, in the book, yes. I said that when, you know, Australians are only relatively recent wine drinkers as a culture. Okay. You know, I mean, when I was growing up in the 70s, early 80s, wine was wine. And definitely, in, I think in the 70s, it was something that, you know, elites or, you know, intellectuals kind of drank, right? And if, if other people like my parents who were just kind of, you know, average everyday people, they buy these quite sweet wines. Okay. Um, and I know that because I necked a few a few of them when I was a kid. So I know that they were sweet. Um, you know, you'd, sorry, you'd have a sip of your parents. But the sweet thing, well, you know, you, India's been growing sugar cane. You know, it's it's something that's – sugar's been something that's been produced here for a, thousands of years. That's true. Um, but I've got some other ideas about that. You know why I think Indians might like sweet stuff? I think it's got to do with vegetarian food as well. I think that – I don't know how to – sometimes when I eat food that's got a lot of – um, like it's very high carbohydrate-based, right, which a lot of vegetarian food is, you know – I often feel like something sweet, whereas if I eat a high-protein meal, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about animal protein, I suppose, I find that kind of quells my sweet 
tooth. I've got a sweet tooth. Believe me, it's common. It's not it's not just Indians, but so mm. I wonder sometimes whether it's the style of food. I I also think that um you know, sweet treats are affordable. A bit of sugar in a, you know, a bit of sugar in something's an affordable. It might have felt like a bit of a luxury. It was probably like one day um if you are eating um, foods with a lot of chili, I often find again I want something sweet at the end to kind of knock the the chili out of my mouth. Um, so I think that that you know again somebody could probably do a PhD on this. So possibly they have. Um, but you grow, you know, you you've always grow, you've grown a lot of sugar. It's a major crop here, so of course it goes into the into the food because it's it's a significant crop um, and. It, it grows in the climate and, and all that sort of stuff. So, and I think there's a strong association, again, another aspect between sweet foods and the gods. You know, it's it's yeah. something, you know, the gods like sweet things. Yes. So, you know, it's prashad, it's got that element over it. So I think all those things are probably coming into play. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and maybe, yeah, look, I think it's all those things. Um, but you know, having a sweet tooth is not exclusive to Indians. <laughs> um, You've touched on so many things in this book. I mean, while I was reading it, I was thinking, are you writing for Indians? Because an Indian can really appreciate this book. Mm. Or are you writing yeah. for non-Indians who want to know about mm. you know, the food culture okay. of this place? You know? Yeah. So I was trying to like figure that out. Interesting. You asked okay, so interesting question. Um, yes, because Penguin Random House India commissioned the book. Mm-hmm. So they obviously are part of that international publishing house, yes. but as you know, all those they're, they're kind of all like a bit of their their own entity, uh, you know, under the umbrella of that of the major publishing house. So Penguin India produces books for an Indian audience yes. and possibly other parts of the subcontinent. I'm not quite sure what their remit is exactly. So yeah, I wrote the book for an Indian audience. So what I my my main thing there was I had to make sure I do it didn't do any India explaining. So you know I, there was some simple things that if I was you know I started to try I started to put like a definition of something in like a kator like a tali or a katori or a whole lot of foods and I just had to go no st- yeah well because I had to go on you know I don't need to explain that to my audience Mm -hmm. and I think but I think I can if I've done that reasonably successfully that is just a product of being here for so long like if I look back at my first book which was the book about the food of the history of food in Delhi you know I wouldn't write parts of that now because like the way you know and I was doing a bit of India explaining but it was also probably because I was doing it for myself Mm -hmm. as well that and I didn't know India as well as I do now so yeah I just had to make sure so yes definitely I was writing it for an Indian audience but I mean anybody could read the book um and there's nothing wrong with somebody from Australia reading that and thinking what's a tali well we've all got a smartphone we can all go you know you know what's a tali or so and I don't think it's a bad idea at all to challenge people to look a few things up I think it sinks in a bit more so yeah definitely for an Indian audience um but of course I hope that it's got a um that it will have a a bigger audience because I think that, for example, in Australia, we are very keen to build our political, trade, cultural, um, social networks with India because Indians are now the biggest growing immigrant group in Australia. Mm. We have a very – and so I wanted – I believe that my book offers – 
an insight, like it offers people a look inside India um, in, in a social and cultural way that if you were, I think, if you were, just say I'm in Australia and I think, right, India is a massive market for a food product. I would see my book as a way of going, well, let me understand what's going on. Let me understand what people are interested in. Let me see what's happening and then take that to design something that is actually for the Indian market rather than just coming in with what I think because I'm Australian and I think, you know. So that was my, is my hope for it in terms of a, having a more international audience. Um, but definitely, yeah, first and foremost, it was for an Indian audience. It's also yeah. a bit nerve-wracking as well because um, you know, I think, oh, I'm not Indian. I don't want people to think I'm trying to appropriate anything or, you know, I'm doing it because I – I just so curious about the country and I do think I had some I have something to offer. I have a different perspective as a okay, I have that kind of food history it understanding that I can place it in. Um and I have a you know and I have a psychology education. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a whole chapter there about food delivery apps. Yes, and yes. what I see from my psychology education is I see a very deliberate behavior change campaign being had having been undertaken mm-hmm. by those companies mm-hmm. because I look at it from a psychological perspective that's what I saw um because you, people had to be like, trained if the Indian wine industry had the resources of the food app food delivery companies they could train Indians to want to drink more wine as well you know it it, it really is a matter of training consumers to use an app to get food. That's what they were doing. And they they were trying to get them to, to use their particular apps. Now, there's nothing wrong with, you know, that's that's what happens. It's like when you go into a supermarket and you see a product on special, they're trying to, you know, train, they want you to try it. And then hopefully through trying it, you know, you will you will be trained to use it. That that it's It's a standard business practice. It's just that the food apps have had so much investment in them that they've been able to do it on a national scale. It's a sort of thing that governments usually do like it's a sort of thing that governments do to change people's behavior like say the Indian government's done with 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 Swatch Bharat right you know that massive national campaign that as I say you get that um that you generally only see with governments you know putting the resources into doing that that was fascinating to me to see that but you know I mean you you seem sort of like uh, a bit bit uh, wary about the long-term effects of these uh, these apps, but mm. you know, as mm. with McDonald's, I mean, while I was reading it, it, I mean, I I didn't think of McDonald's, but as with McDonald's having to change itself to fit the Indian consumer, I think mm. something similar might happen with the food delu- you know, food apps. The only horrible yeah. thing is the waste mm. that's generated, which also you speak exactly, about, and yeah, the, and the way the pe- the delivery partners mm. are treated, mm. they are treated badly. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I think you're right. Look, I and I, I'm pretty upfront in there that I, I've got a particular viewpoint on food delivery apps and I put other people's opinions in because I understand that, you know, people love them, they use them, they find them really useful. Um, they were very useful during COVID. They, they've probably saved the re- a lot of restaurants during COVID. They've been great for women. They've given a lot of women opportunities. So I, I acknowledge all that. But yeah, I'm, I'm wary. I think that I suppose my main, you know, just thinking, 
taking a systemic view of it, is that those apps have been funded largely by international investors who are only, what they're interested in is profit, right? They don't really care about what's going on in India. I'm not saying that the Zomato guys don't. They ultimately, they want to make money. And that's what, if the profits have to come, they'll screw other things down, right? That's my big concern. But you're right, since I wrote that, It's been very interesting to what's happened with food delivery all around the world, actually. It's kind of peaked, I think. I think it's peaked. Um, And I'm not the only one that thinks that. Like if you listen to kind of or read about other things, I think it's peaked. Like we've actually had um, a couple of companies pull out of it in Australia, like that the food delivery and even things like grocery delivery. We've just had a uh, one of the grocery delivery um, startups that got a whole lot of money put into it collapse. Like they've shut down, that's it, they cease to exist. So I think it's peaked. Um, and now that doesn't mean it won't have another rise, but I think it's kind of flattened out a bit. And I think that it will, in the end, largely be delivering a certain type of food. Um, okay. So, you know, mainly probably more like fast foods. Um, but in fairness, I think they're conscious of the waste thing and putting, like, I know that um, one of them, you know, now probably both of them do it. Big ones that ask people whether they want the cuddlery, you know, the disposable cuddlery, which is great. You have to say you want it. But the the problem with all of this, and I've written about it, and it happens everywhere, is got to be aware of a little bit of greenwashing because. Just because something says biodegradable, if you chuck it in the in the regular rubbish, it's going into landfill and it, it's not biodegrading. It needs to be composted to biodegrade. So I think as consumers, we love that. We like to think, oh, well, I'm using all this packaging, but, you know, it's okay. It's biodegradable. But it's only that if you put it into certain conditions. And I don't think that's happening, not just in India. I don't think it's happening in Australia either. I see people get their bags of food delivery waste and they go straight in the rubbish bin, in the regular rubbish. So, but yeah, I think I think it's, um, I acknowledge that it's there. People, as I keep saying, people enjoy it. They like using it. it it's handy. Um, I think that for people that are perhaps, you know, a bit housebound or maybe they're eating by themselves, they can just get one portion of what they want. Yeah, I think that, that, look, there's definitely benefits to it. While I think people have been trained or you could say if you want to a bit manipulated towards them, you know, people wouldn't continue to perhaps use them if they weren't useful as well. So I acknowledge there's an intersection between being a bit manipulated and meeting, you know, people's needs to a certain degree. Going on from food delivery apps, you know, about the mountains of waste. I mean, you know, in the 90s, just Mm. as liberalization was happening, the country was much cleaner. I mean, we were much poorer. It's true. But we were cleaner. Like mm, you know, mm. Now, you, any yes. place you go to, you see you see waste. I mean, you see plastic and, you know, waste. You see uh, mm. stuff that mm. is not biodegradable. You see it even in villages, you know. Mm. And it's upsetting when you know. I know, you do. Yeah. It's not like, was mm. not li- always like this, mm. you know. So, and, and these mm. huge landfills, I mean, they're an eyesore. And they're such a, mm. you know, it's a hazard health hazard so all that is oh, they're, they're... a part of our lives so how does a, you know how and this so, is a feature of all develop i mean 
more developed nations, right? Huge landfills. Yeah. So, what so, do you do about it? Mm. You know? Well, you know, it's interesting because that's what I, I've watched India too go from a resource conservative country to a resource, you know, consumptive country as well in, in coming here. And look, I don't know, you know, as I said, you know, the wealthiest people on this planet consume the most and create the most waste. And that's because as because when and as we're talking about this, I think before we recording, what has become the biggest influencer for people when purchasing food products in that more kind of in that more in that better, uh, more affluent, you know, sector of society is branding. Right. Yeah. And branding happens through packaging. In most cases, it can happen through labels as well, but it mainly happens through branding. And also by branding a product and putting it in a packet, you can charge more for less. So it's more profitable for food producers. So I don't see that going away. I think, yeah, there will be a move towards, you know, more biodegradable or, you know, different sorts of packaging, which, you know, some of them, somebody will probably eventually come up with some packaging that will biodegrade in a, in a big landfill, but I don't think that's necessarily there. I think there'll be a lot of work around that, but. Yeah, I don't think there's any stopping it. I don't think there's any going back. Like, you know, yeah, India's been really resource conservative. People don't want people want the pleasure of yes. of, you know, of having and I look, I get sucked into it too, you know, seeing those beautiful packages and making it feel like you're trying something different or you're trying something new. Even though you might be buying a packet of millet that your grandmother was eating, you know, it, it feels um and you know, I I I don't want to deny it. You know, why should people why, you know, where we're all doing it in Australia. Americans are doing it. Why shouldn't Indians do it? But it's just the issue is the numbers. You know, you, you guys are such a big population here. And China, the same thing will be happening in China. If you've got numbers that have not come into this sort of prosperity in history, right? So, and also haven't had that met with all this kind of packaged food. So that's going to be the issue. Honestly, I have no, I've got no solution to it. It is probably going to get worse before it gets better. We, I mean, we do it in Australia, but we've got 24 million people and we hide our rubbish. You know, we were putting out, we put a lot of our rubbish onto barges yes. and, you know, I don't know where it goes, but we were also, we're all filling our recycling bins thinking, oh, look how good I am. I'm recycling it. And, you know, we were sending it off to places like China and Indonesia. And in Indonesia, they were burning it to, you know, to because they use a lot of, um, you know, combustion to like um, to make food products and stuff. So they're burning it there. And we think we're being virtuous, but actually we're sending it off elsewhere and because we've only got 24 million people we're not generating as much so we can hide it a bit more but we're doing the same thing um okay so these are the the big challenges i guess of the future that i mean yeah the challenge here that might be because it's going to be such a massive problem here you might actually deal better with it quicker than other places because otherwise it you know you, you're going to be drowning in rubbish yeah um you might deal with it better and and you might come up with some better solutions quicker than we do because we're not under so much. I mean, you know, we, we are, but we're not under. We don't feel like we're under so much pressure. Okay, so now about you know you, you you've written about how you encountered you know Indian food first and home cooking and mm. and the place women mm. have in it and you know mm. and how. Mm. I mean, mm. women bloggers and women cookbook writers have always mm. been at the forefront in India. 
you know, in terms of mm. the food culture of the country. I mean, at least in yes. modern India, post-independence and contemporary India. So let's talk mm. about that, you know. Um, women being at the forefront? Yeah. Yeah. All these food uh, things, you know. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, of course, you know, women have always women have been the maintainers of India's food culture, you know, forever. Um, and even now, women, you know, women still most food, most food, most meals in India are still produced in a home, and women most often produce them. Yes. So that's that's there. But yeah, just that. So what I and I think again, I've written about it. Women were empowered by technology, and it was women in India that started blogging about food as soon as they could. And I think it's just grown from. There. There. I think partly because I suppose domestic food has been the per, you know, has been the domain of women, and so when they found an a something that allowed them a, a more public out, a more public um, import, I mean, a more public expression, initially blogs, that they really went for it, and it also allowed them to discover more about what other women around India were doing. Yes. And then I think that's just evolved. You know, it evolved into videos and then it evolved into, I suppose, perhaps more commercial opportunities for, for women, like people, you know, people pulling women out and, and you know, in, encouraging women and taking them into, um, you know, into hotels and, and having women who are great domestic cooks do pop-ups, like work with the chefs. And, and or, you know, I remember there's a, a really fantastic, and again, I'm not doing a, I'm not trying to do a, a brand here, but there's a really great, um, hotel chain in Kerala called CGH Earth, and years ago now they were they were really big on bringing local women in to their you know their very nice um, resorts and and getting the women to work with the, the professional cooks there and emerge at like a really fabulous unique cuisine in their places that that was like a representation of local food. Um, so that started happening, and then of course you know a lot of the a lot most of the from my observation most of the really good um deep dive food food writing in India now is is largely women I'm not saying there aren't men but it's again it's just and I think you know that that's probably fairly common around the world is that you know once you once you get this kind of turn where people start looking at traditional or, or long-standing cultural or you know food practices or looking to domestic food of course it's going to come you know largely come from women um so because women are in the homes doing it so and but what you know I found particularly interesting and more women are becoming professional cook chefs yeah yeah but your observation is how women from across the country uh, now know what, you know, we were very, I mean, you pointed out, and we were very, very provincial in many ways about each other within the country. You know, a Punjabi would just yes. think South yeah. Indian food is only idli dosa and somebody in the South will think, oh, mm. the North, North is eating, uh, you know, they're always into mutton or you know, stuff like that, you know. Yeah. This, yeah. This sort, <laughs> yeah. These sort of stereotypes. But now we've kind of mm. gone beyond that because of internet and because of more sort of familiarity mm. with each other. And I'm wondering whether this mm. is going to lead to you know, a, a, a sort of different sort of cuisine, which is sort of hybrid, you know, you think? Mm. Oh, well, it apart. could. So it's interesting you say that because when I first come, it's, you know, one of the key themes, that, you know, sort of starting in the book, when I first came to India and I discovered this incredible diversity of food, I was so kind of flabbergasted to discover that Indians weren't interested in each other's food. In fact, I, I had people say to me, 
why would you be interested? Like, why? I mean, they thought the food that they ate was great, but they didn't think anybody else's was, you know, like, and it was, I was, you know, as you say, all those what, um, you know, gastroethnic kind of cameos, I was really amazed because I, oh, don't, can't you see what you've got here? And you're right, it's absolutely changed. And I do believe that that, that women starting to blog and share was a start of part of that. It's got a few different factors. Yeah, it's interesting about that. Yeah, I think there will be some hybridization of someone mixing, you know, Tamil elements with Punjabi elements. And look, some of that will be some of that will just be novelty and it won't it won't work. And some of it might it may emerge new kind of styles of food that that stick around. Absolutely, that could happen. So yeah, I think all sorts of things could happen. I mean, you'll get more. I think you'll definitely get more kind of you know, for lack of a better word, Western styles of ingredients and techniques coming into you know Indian food. Um, so in homes, I think people will, will blend that more. So definitely there could be, you know, convergences and new things emerge um, over time. I suppose we'll just have to wait and see. Mm. Um, and de- I mean, there will be for no other reason that people will people seek novelty in food and, you know, restaurants will seek novelty. Uh, so there will definitely be some, um, I don't know, you know, in Australia, um, people have just, Indian restaurants have just started introducing um, Golgoppas, Pani Puri. Um, yeah, it's just starting to come in. But they don't put they don't put jaljeera in them. They put things like, and wait for this, butter chicken sauce into them or yogurt and like tamarind. Ch- I know, see, it, it, but I don't think Australians are ready for jaljeera. Sorry? Yogurt and tamarind is good. Yeah. It's not as good as it's. Uh, I mean, I think Jaljeera is amazing. Like, I never forget the first time I had a pani puri. I was like, oh, that is amazing. But I even now, when I've given that to friends, people are still in Australia. People are a bit, but the butter chicken one, you know, people love that. So you could even you'll get you could even end up getting that sort of thing here, like people putting samba into into pani puri, which they may you know and. Some of it will work and some of it will just be like, no way, and it will disappear. So, yeah, I'm sure there'll be in a few years' time somebody will be able to document that a bit more and watch that watch that kind of emergence of, of those things. I can keep talking to you because, <laughs> I mean, I really enjoyed the book and, you know, it made me look at stuff that, oh, thank you. you know, I didn't think about earlier. And also mm-hmm. this, this, this view of somebody who knows the culture, but is not, you know, who's from Australia, from somewhere else, but yet has mm-hmm. a great understanding of the food. I found that fascinating mm-hmm. and, you know, it's really a rewarding. Oh, food. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, thank for, you. Yeah. Um, for the listeners, go out and get Eating the Present, Tasting the Future, Exploring India Through Her Changing Food by Charmaine O'Brien. It's really a, a great read, very insightful and very full full of full of anecdote and full of information i it's a great uh, great read oh thank, thank you. you charmaine yeah for talking to me oh my pleasure thanks for thanks for inviting me on and i really enjoyed talking to you okay bye hope to meet you somewhere bye yes bye see you this was a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast hd smartcast